As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 5, Bloody Inhumanity. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the new additions to the House of Lords, the Earl of Osprey, Nitsangeva, and Thomas, Baron Denton. Like all of the patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. The new Earl of Osprey can also listen to the bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we covered the bloody siege and sack of the Irish town of Drogheda. In Oliver Cromwell's first major act of his Irish campaign, his army broke the walls of the coastal town and, furious that the royalist governor had refused to surrender, he ordered the garrison to be slaughtered. Thousands were put to the sword, and many survivors were dispatched to the colony of Barbados as indentured servants. As we heard, there is some debate over the extent of civilian casualties, but at a minimum the parliamentary army must have killed hundreds, and quite possibly many more. Today, Cromwell will follow up the sack of Drogheda, the single largest siege massacre in Irish history, with the sack of Wexford, the second single largest siege massacre in Irish history. As you may recall from last week, one of Cromwell's justifications for ordering the mass execution of Drogheda's defeated garrison was strategic. It was a clear warning to everyone in Ireland that failing to surrender when summoned would be severely punished. So, in the wake of Drogheda, as Cromwell's soldiers spread out and began securing nearby towns and strongholds, they found that the message had been received. The garrisons of both Trim and Dundalk outright fled at the approach of the English. This was despite Ormond's orders to them to burn the towns and fortifications before they left, to prevent them falling into parliamentary hands. Ormond himself wrote to his king, and confessed that it was, quote, not to be imagined how great the terror that those successes and the power of the rebels have struck into this people. In a follow-up letter, he tells Charles that Cromwell had done, quote, 
much more than anything I ever heard of in breach of faith and bloody inhumanity. End quote. Ormond compared the brutality of Cromwell with that of his own men at a castle outside Dublin in July, when they had captured it and its garrison. The rank and file got in first, and yet even without officer supervision, none of the defenders were killed. Ormond repeated in full the horrific testimony of Drogheda's survivors to royalists abroad, but within Ireland he had to tread a fine line. The right dose of details from the sack of Drogheda would surely fire up the royalists with outrage, but too high a dose could lead to panic and break morale. The collapse of Trim and Dundalk were proof of that. With those positions secured for Parliament, the way into Ulster was now clear, and Cromwell dispatched Colonel Robert Venables, who had captured Dundalk, into the province to conquer it for Parliament and reinforce Charles Coote. In the meantime, Coote captured Coleraine and, in an act that even Lipscomb regards as a war crime, massacred the royalist garrison after Protestant citizens opened the gates. On the 21st, assisted by a naval barrage from the anchored fleet, Venables captured Carlingford and then took Newry the next day. On the 30th of September, Belfast surrendered without a fight. Coote and Venables would then link up and spend the rest of the year hammering Monroe's Scots and Ulster royalists. Ulster would be almost entirely under parliamentary control by the end of the year. Meanwhile, Cromwell returned to Dublin to resupply and assess his losses, but he didn't stay for long. On the 23rd of September, leaving his sick and wounded to be cared for in Dublin, Cromwell marched south. His target was Wexford. Wexford is a port city that sits on the Irish Sea, just before the hinge where the coast of Ireland veers southwest. In the 1640s, Wexford was a valuable hub for Confederate trade and piracy. Privateers, both Irish and Flemish, preyed on English shipping throughout the period and made a boatload from it, pun intended. When not conducting these aggressive acquisitions, the ships of Wexford maintained trade and communication links with the European continent. On top of these reasons, Cromwell wanted this hostile port closed to secure his supply lines back home. Over eight days of marching, the army took a number of castles and towns which surrendered without a fight. No one wanted to be the next Drogheda. These included Enniscorthy, Arklow, and Ferns. The 11,000-strong army was well supplied, the navy shadowed the force, with provisions shipped ashore when needed, and local Irish took Cromwell up on his proclamation and arrived with goods to sell. Other locals met Cromwell's army with less friendly intentions, Royalist skirmishers harassed the column along its march, striking quickly and then disappearing into the hills of Wicklow and County Wexford. On one occasion, a force raided the parliamentary camp and stole a bunch of horses, including Cromwell's own battle mount. The leader of the raid, Christopher O'Toole, was offered £100 by Cromwell, through his father, to return it, but O'Toole preferred to keep the white stallion as a souvenir. Obviously, Cromwell would have replaced his horse but I think it's funnier to imagine him stubbornly refusing to ride anything else and instead spending the rest of his campaign stomping around Ireland on foot. He'd probably see it as providence, God's judgement that he needed more exercise. On the 1st of October, Cromwell arrived, on foot perhaps, at the walls of Wexford. He'd swung west of Wexford, crossing the River Slaney and then coming at the port from the south. Wexford Harbour is well protected by two opposing capes, Rosslare in the south and Raven Point in the north. At Rosslare sat a fort, 
appropriately named Rosslair Fort, and Cromwell dispatched Michael Jones at the head of a force of dragoons to take it. Once again, the defenders abandoned their position before Jones even arrived, but because of the geography, at the end of a narrow spit of land which Jones was riding up, their escape had to be by sea. Unfortunately, Cromwell's naval support was just offshore, waiting to drop off his artillery, and a frigate easily caught them on the water and captured the garrison. The rest of the fleet then sailed into Wexford Harbour, unmolested by the artillery fort that was now in Jones's hands. Cromwell received his delivery of artillery, and began establishing his siege works. But Wexford did not open its gates, although not from lack of trying. A plot by some citizens to surrender the town, to avoid Drahada's fate, was foiled by the garrison. Reinforced by 1,500 men sent by Ormond, Wexford was well defended. Twenty-foot-high walls, supported by an earth bank, surrounded the town. Its harbour was protected by Fort Rosslare, usually, and Cromwell could not complete his cordon. So, reinforcements and supplies freely crossed the River Slaney at the north by ferry. On the 3rd of October, Cromwell summoned the governor to surrender. He offered fairly generous terms, and it seems like Cromwell's aim went beyond the usual hope to avoid a prolonged siege or bloody storm. With winter approaching, Wexford would be a great place to set up his winter quarters, close enough to Munster and his future campaigns, and easily supplied by sea. To this end, his terms included the disarming and release of the garrison, the imprisonment of its officers, and Cromwell's guarantee that the town would not be plundered. But as eager as many of Wexford's civilian leaders were to agree to these terms, their military governor was not. That governor was the Anglo-Irish Catholic colonel, David Sinnott, who, like Aston at Drogheda, had been parachuted in with reinforcements by Ormond, who suspected, rightly, that Wexford's citizens would favour surrender. Sinnott replied to Cromwell's demand to surrender, and responded that he would be open to a negotiated surrender. He demanded that all hostilities cease while negotiations were underway, and his first terms included the continued exercise of Catholicism within the city and the security of the property of the townspeople, which included a lot of suspiciously obtained goods. Sinnott was playing for time while Cromwell's enemies reacted. Ormond soon arrived nearby at New Ross with his forces, and O'Neill was finally en route. A vanguard of 2,000 men soon arrived at Ormond's camp. Cromwell had chosen a poor spot to set up his camp. When it started raining, his camp flooded. Dysentery flourished, and hundreds of men came down with the bloody flux. It looked like General Rain would be Ormond's best commander, and that the strategy of delay and attrition was working. Cromwell had set out from Dublin with 11,000 men, but after the march south, the skirmishes along the way, the need to garrison the many forts which surrendered to him, and the spread of dysentery, he was down to about 9,000. Now, of course, Cromwell suspected Sinnott's real intentions, and so he refused to halt his siege works, and famously responded that, Our tents are not so good a covering as your houses. This was while he was, perhaps, standing in ankle-deep swamp water, still piously refusing to replace his horse. Throughout the following week, Sinnott was reinforced and resupplied by ferry, while Cromwell repositioned his camp to a drier spot and prepared his artillery to fire. At one point, Ormond showed up at the north bank of Wexford Harbour at the head of 1800 cavalry, in a show of force. Cromwell was not impressed, and sent Jones to challenge Ormond, who promptly ran away. 
Like I mentioned last week, the new model army's cavalry was famously good, and Ormond didn't fancy his chances. On the 10th of October, frustrated and out of patience with Sinnott's delaying tactics, Cromwell's cannons opened fire and began to open two breaches in the walls. Soon enough, word reached Cromwell that Sinnott was keen to reopen talks. In Cromwell's words, the governor's stomach fell down. Sinnott asked to send four representatives to Cromwell to discuss the surrender of Wexford. Now, I've read conflicting accounts about what followed. Some cast no blame on Sinnott, and believe this latest round of talks was a genuine attempt to end the siege without bloodshed, and that he just ran out of time. Others suggest that after implying or stating that he accepted Cromwell's earlier terms, Sinnott's representatives arrived and presented demands for further concessions, including the free withdrawal of the garrison with their weapons, and that the merchants of Wexford, or were they privateers, be permitted to sail their ships and suspiciously acquired goods away. In this reading of events, Cromwell refused to accept these new terms, and the talks stalled. It is possible, and even likely, that if an agreement had been reached now, Cromwell would have followed it to the letter. He had in the past, and he would in the future, even in Ireland. But an agreement wouldn't be made in time. Because there was Wexford Town and Wexford Castle, which sat alongside it, and though Wexford Town was under the command of Sinnott, Wexford Castle was governed by one Captain Stafford, and he came to his own agreement with the parliamentarians. He'd been kept informed about the negotiations and how they seemed to have stalled, and he watched from his castle walls as the town walls began to crumble, and he decided he didn't fancy getting himself and his men killed. Whatever his reasons, he came to terms with Cromwell's officers and opened the castle gates. Cromwell's soldiers then rushed inside, up onto the walls, and ominously turned the castle's artillery towards the town. Now this would have made defending the town walls much more difficult, but there wouldn't be a defence. Because as soon as the town's garrison saw parliamentary troops up on the castle walls, they panicked and ran. Then it was the turn of parliamentary troops to notice that something interesting had happened on the walls, which was mainly that they were basically empty of defenders. And, without orders from Cromwell or his direct subordinates, the soldiers rushed the walls with their ladders, climbed up, and took control without any real resistance. And just like that, Wexford had fallen. So far, so relatively bloodless. That quickly changed. Many of the retreating soldiers rallied in the marketplace, and that doomed them. The new model army vastly outnumbered the defenders, and without the walls as a force multiplier, the garrison, after putting up what Cromwell calls stiff resistance, broke, and they were massacred. The besiegers swept through the town, killing many soldiers and civilians. We have to assume that Wexford's clergy was especially targeted by the rampaging soldiers. A later petition from Wexford reported that all the men, women and children of the town, except, quote, to the very few, had been killed by Cromwell's men. This was a petition, intended to inspire pity and persuade the authorities to provide support, but even so, civilians were killed in substantial numbers at Wexford, and we have much more contemporary evidence of that than at Drogheda. Cromwell himself estimates that the combined death toll of both soldiers and civilians was around 2,000. A few hundred of these deaths occurred when overcrowded boats flocked into the harbour. 
full of panicking soldiers and civilians, more than one overturned, including the boat carrying Governor Sinnott, whose body was later fished out of the bay. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Cromwell didn't give the order for the assault or the massacre, and he seems to have lost control over the famously well-disciplined New Model Army. This is interesting for a few reasons. Firstly, it shows that the line officers who noticed the empty walls and gave the orders to charge had enough initiative and confidence to do so without orders from above. Secondly, the massacre by the soldiers, as at Drogheda, displays the cultural and religious hatred present in the ranks of Parliament's army. Unlike Drogheda, which was fairly mixed between the various groups in Ireland, Wexford was very much a Catholic town, and a Catholic town famed for hosting pirates who raided English shipping. None of that boded well for the population when the army broke in, without being restricted by their officers under terms of surrender. And thirdly, Cromwell lost control of his army. That was itself noteworthy, and it is sometimes used to excuse Cromwell from blame for Wexford in a way that simply isn't possible for Drogheda. But as Miholo Shukru, among others, have argued, Cromwell was still the overall commander. The book stopped with him. His army, acting without orders, was his responsibility. But besides that, there's no evidence that Cromwell or his subordinates actively attempted to restrain the soldiers once they got into Wexford. He was surprised that his men had seized the initiative and taken the walls, and that's fair enough. But once they got inside, and began fighting the rallied garrison, and especially once the civilian population began to be targeted and the town deliberately sacked, there's little evidence I've seen that Cromwell even tried to get a handle on things. 
Put another way, he doesn't seem to have ordered the killings as he did at Drogheda, but he seems to have done nothing to stop them either. The capture of Wexford provided the parliamentarian campaign with another port for supplies, naval basing and communication. They captured many Irish ships at anchor, along with all their goods, ill-gotten and otherwise, and between 70 and 100 pieces of artillery were taken from the walls and the ships. However, the sack ruined Cromwell's plan to use the town as his winter quarters, and so he would have to look elsewhere. He looked at New Ross, another town about 21 miles or 35 kilometres west of Wexford. Cromwell released two officers captured at Wexford and sent them on ahead. When they arrived, they could testify to the danger of not surrendering quickly to Cromwell. The population of New Ross was firmly on the side of surrender, and the governor, Lucas Taff, sent word to Ormond. He needed support now, or he would have to surrender. Ormond, who had withdrawn back to Kilkenny after the loss of Wexford, promised him support, but when Cromwell arrived at the walls, he summoned Taft to surrender. Once again, he claimed that he, quote, endeavoured to avoid the effusion of blood. Drogheda and Wexford had suffered, quote, through their own willfulness. When Taft did not immediately surrender, Cromwell ordered his artillery to fire on the walls, and on the morning of the 19th of October, a breach was made. Taft immediately surrendered the town, and Cromwell gave very generous terms. The garrison was permitted to leave with their weapons and baggage, and the civilian population was guaranteed protection. However, when it came to religion, Cromwell was clear. Writing to Taft, he said, quote, If by liberty of conscience you mean a liberty to exercise mass, I judge it best to plain dealing, and to let you know where the Parliament of England have power, that will not be allowed, end quote. No one would be forced to attend Protestant services. Cromwell was firm in his belief in independency, but that did not mean that Catholicism would be permitted free practice. But Taft accepted the terms and withdrew his men, and New Ross was spared. The losses of Wexford and now New Ross devastated Ormond's authority. It didn't help that Taft insisted to everyone that Ormond had given him permission to surrender. Ormond will face continued attack from his own side, and hemorrhaged Protestant troops like at New Ross, because not all of Taft's soldiers left with him. 500 Protestant royalists stayed behind and defected to Cromwell. Cromwell also received word that 5,000 reinforcements, as well as new supplies, were on the way from England. This was great news for Cromwell, who had, despite his successes, been suffering from Ormond's strategy of attrition. He received further good news, that Prince Rupert's fleet, blockaded in Kinsale Harbour since spring, broke through the parliamentarian cordon and sailed to Portugal. A deal had been struck with King Joao IV, and the royalist fleet would find refuge in Tagus estuary. It would have been better if the fleet had been destroyed or captured, but their flight, along with the capture of Wexford, meant that the royalist presence in the Irish Sea was now down to a handful of Irish privateers based in smaller Irish ports or continental havens like Dunkirk. In October, Ireland saw the return of Lord Broghill, the Munster Protestant who had been such a pain in the neck for Lord Inchiquin, even when they were both on the same side. Next week, we will see how Broghill will help turn the trickle of defections into a torrent as the Royalist coalition begins to shatter. 
Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite, Mike Sanders, the Duke of Bracewell, David Braswell, the Marquess of Argyle, Bruce Simmons, and the Earl of Waldegrave, David Cardena. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.